Hey guys, welcome back. This is the fourth video on the channel. And today we're gonna to be uh, expanding upon the ideas that we were developing in video number three, which concerns uh, the attempt to define and elaborate a framework about what philosophy is, what does philosophy mean, and how does a philosopher think about the world. But in this video, we're gonna be doing a deep dive analysis into one of Manly P. Hall's lectures titled, Opening the Door to the Invisible. So Manley Hall is, uh, in my interpretation, the number one philosopher of sort of modern times. His method is comparative analysis. So he takes all the different systems of the world, the major systems of thinking anyway, uh, from all the major cultures, uh, from ancient up to modern. Uh, he also dissects modern thought and modern thinking about science and society. But a lot of his attention is on the ancient classics, and he does a sort of synthesis, interpretive synthesis of the idea that all the, these seemingly separate systems of wisdom actually have a single underlying teaching. Um, and so this is the sort of esoteric framework. Uh, a similar interpreter uh, of these, uh, a similar person who used these same methods was uh, a woman named Helena Plavatsky, who sort of was one generation earlier from Manley Hall and uh, her book was called The Secret Doctrine. And they both are covering really the same phenomena, which is this idea that uh, there's an exoteric and an esoteric form of knowledge. So exoteric is the idea there's an outer form. Uh, and, and then there's esoteric, which is the idea there's an inner form. Esoteric philosophy is philosophy that's explicitly referencing the idea that there's an esoteric framework behind the different systems of philosophy. So we need to analyze what their exoteric teachings are, but then we're going to try to distill from what those symbols and teachings and lessons that are contained within all the various frameworks of philosophy that exist in the world. And we're going to go try to distill those into what are the common principles. And those common principles are really getting into uh, the esoteric teachings, the esoteric framework, the idea that there's an inner mysterious teaching that has to do with the mysteries of consciousness and the way that the individual can unfold um, his own life in order to explore and unlock these experiences of consciousness. I chose this lecture from hundreds of possible lectures uh, to be the first uh, one by uh, Mr. Hall that I analyzed because I think that it does a, uh, a good job of overviewing his basic principles of philosophy. I chose this because I think it's a good overview of what the central theme is of his work. Um, he talks about some of these themes pretty explicitly. So to start things off, I want to play a little clip where he states that he is giving his own interpretation and framework of philosophy. So let's start off with that. This morning, I'm not going to quote from any illustrious authors because I want to tie my subject to personal experiences. Let's consider one more quote that's going to really outline what the central theme of not only this lecture is, opening the doors to the invisible, but also what the central theme is, I think, of his work um, that he's done sort of in his whole career. So we have to try to find out how uh, to reach the opening of the inner life so that something superior to mind can become the ruler of mind and use the mind, the emotions, and the body as an instrument for the fulfillment of a sacred purpose. This we have to try to discover in one way or another. He's letting you know just from the simple statement 
uh, that he's concerned with opening something within in terms of consciousness, in terms of experience, in terms of intuition. So he's interested in a sort of internal unfoldment of the individual. And another name for this process of internal unfoldment would be the process of trying to achieve or attain enlightenment. So this thing that you're awakening, this consciousness is superior to mind. Um, and because it's superior to mind, it has the ability to become the ruler of the mind. So right now within the average individual, the mind is the ruler. The mind is the uh, thing that structures our experience of life and also dictates the patterns of behavior and thought and emotion that govern our lives. But he's going to be giving the perspective that um, the goal of the philosopher is to take rulership over the mind and bring the mind into a position where it's not a ruler, but it's a servant. And what it serves is this idea of a higher consciousness, an inner life. So his method is to use the mind and the body by implication as an instrument for the fulfillment of a sacred purpose. So essentially, it's this idea of a higher self and a lower self. Uh, we all have a higher self and a lower self, but the higher self uh, for the majority of us is something that we don't have an active relationship with. It hasn't been awakened as an active force in our lives. From here, we're going to launch off uh, in, into a deeper analysis and breakdown of the lecture. Uh, Manley Hall starts off by giving us some context. He's going to start off by giving us some information and analysis about how mysticism originated in the early days. So I'm going to play a few clips now that are referencing that line of thinking. Well, in the earliest days that we know of, there were in all tribes and nations certain mystics. And these mystics were persons who were given to strange dreams, visions, curious experiences, which did not limit their consciousness entirely to the common world. Now, there have always been natural mystics. These natural mystics were not necessarily psychics. They had experiences, but these experiences were inward revelations. The true mystic was not telling his neighbor what was going to happen to him. The true mystic was exploring a realm or a vista far greater than the material world in which he lived. We begin to see that in ancient times there were various doctrines that were developed very largely for the purpose of bringing the individual into contact with his own higher nature that there were teachings that taught him to rise above the, even the highest aspects of his own mind into an immediate and intimate experience of reality. This became a very deep and important problem, particularly with the Neoplatonists and uh, with the Buddhists and several other groups, that the quest for the way to become enlightened Enlightenment being, in this case, the light of the inner shining upon the outer. All right, so let's backtrack and just go over what exactly he said here. So he was saying that 
in the beginning of days, this sort of prehistoric era that we know very little about, um, society, human civilization, and all the different forms it took, sort of archetypally always had some aspect of mysticism embedded in it. In other words, mysticism is a fundamental aspect of our species. And so in the early days of our species development, or at least our mental development, mysticism played a big role in establishing the sort of development and evolution of the thought patterns uh, that gradually brought humanity into more and more sort of complex and advanced states of living. They were creating doctrines to educate um, and bring these teachings and influences and patterns of knowledge that they were developing to bring them and seed them into the societies that they lived within. So he says that in ancient times there were various doctrines that were developed largely for the purpose of bringing the individual into contact with his own higher nature. And when you come into contact with your own higher nature, notice that he's saying or implying that this is takes form as an immediate and intimate experience of reality. And then to sort of bring it home, I mean, he mentions only a couple by names, the Neoplatonists, the Buddhists, but basically his idea is that the philosophic sects, sects of history were all groups that were actually interested in pursuing in their own ways the same goal and were coming to the same conclusions. Um, and these have to do with the unfoldment of the mind and the release of consciousness as a result of that unfoldment. Now in this lecture, he's gonna move on. He's gonna explore the topic of how the first sort of mystic philosophers in ancient societies, what method did they use in order to develop systems of philosophy? In other words, systems of thinkings and teachings that they could embed and communicate and seed within their culture. So essentially the challenge for the philosophers were how to translate their findings. How do we communicate this into other people who haven't had these same experiences, haven't done the analysis that they had done. Essentially, they were trying to convert others into being philosophers like them. So there's a social goal of the philosopher, and he's kind of painting this image of what that is from the earliest times. So now he's going to almost give the earliest histories of science we think science, of science as this special and separate thing that only exists in modern times. The way Mr. Hall thinks about science is more that science is a process of systematically observing nature and then filtering your own ideas and analysis that you're holding for yourself, your own map of reality. You're filter, filtering that map according to the results of your interactions with nature. So you're um, intentionally seeking to observe and learn and synthesize observations about nature and you're, and you're attempting to incorporate those. The difference between the philosopher and this sort of modern person who says, I'm just interested in science, is that the philosopher is equally apt to incorporate and integrate information that comes from within and to emphasize the idea that knowledge contained from within has its own, can be its own source of knowledge and can reflect or can give us information about reality that we really need to juggle the internal and the external or the religious and the scientific. Philosophy is interested in the synthesis and integration of all these different things. 
So now we're gonna play a few clips where he makes the case that the early philosophers developed their systems by integrating their observations of nature, including observations of the seasons, the earth, and the heavens. Generally speaking, primitive man lived in a natural world. And living in a natural world, when he tried to create a philosophy of life with very limited resources with which to work, and not really any understanding that there was a philosophy of life, he began to build his way of living by studying the life of the world around him. Almost all old theologies are merely abstractions of natural phenomena. So little by little we built a world in which nature provided the only available facts. These facts could be by careful meditation perhaps or constant reinvestigation could become truths. There were truths that could be built upon facts. That these facts could become the basis of rules. That these facts by constant repetition and investigation showed nature's way in a great many directions. It made it possible to decide internally, to a measure at least, what nature expected us to do on the basis of nature would penalize anything that was not within its own approval. So little by little the science of nature began to take the form of a natural philosophy. A natural philosophy that was based upon the seasons, upon the climates, upon the various nature phenomena, from everything from the gently flowing stream to the volcanic eruption. All these things had to be fitted into something supported by facts. And facts were things that you could see, that you could touch, or you could in some way have a direct contact. So basically here, uh, Mr. Hall is giving the idea that reality is associated with the idea of law, that there is a law underlying all things that exist. And so the method of the philosopher is to attempt to learn that law so he can live within the framework of law. So if there's a central law underlying existence, really what the philosopher is trying to do is integrate himself in harmony with that law. So to be out of harmony with that law and to not know that you are or to not know the way to get back to health, uh, which is harmonious relationship with law, is to be ignorant. So ignorance is the idea that you're departing from law. And as Buddha tells us, ignorance is the root of suffering. So we suffer when we depart from the law, the law of existence, the law of our own existence, sort of a similar concept to sustainability, that when we, when we fall out of sustainability, we fall out of relationship, a proper relationship, or the relationship that we're intended to have with nature. So in order to become sustainable, we need to reintegrate or we need to reestablish the law of nature within human society. Human society must act within the law and according to the law of our own existence. So what Mr. Hall is saying is that the great systems of philosophy that we've inherited from the past were ones that were built with the idea of law 
as a fundamental principle of those systems. So in this next series of clips, we're gonna uh, hear Mr. Hall talk about what the primary approach of the philosopher is in order to attain the opening of the inner life. And in this lecture, he gives it the name, the attainment of a stillness, a type of philosophic approach to stillness. To be a philosopher is not something you do once you've already attained this stillness that Manley Hall is gonna talk about. Being a philosopher is what you do to accomplish that goal. So a master is not someone who then becomes a philosopher. A philosopher is something that one does to become a master. And in the sort of language of esotericism, a master of philosophy is called an adept. And we'll get into that a little bit more another time. So for now, let's check out this next batch of clips. One of the first things that we are told in ancient scriptures is the simple line, be still and know that I am God. Now, I think perhaps this is one of the most important statements in connection with man's religious life. The problem of trying to be still. Now, when we think of still, if we are bound to material things, we will simply say that the individual does nothing. That is not the answer. That is not what is intended. To be still to the mystic means to be free from the involvements of mind and emotion and free also from various physical symptomologies that may arise in order that he will be permit that which is truly the over-self to be heard. To be still now for us in this particular world in which we now live, it seems to me is to cease doing that which is not necessary, not right, and not good. The individual must choose sometime to clearly face the fact that he cannot be right if he continues to act wrong, that there is a, a relationship between conduct and consciousness. There is a relationship between our material personality and that mysterious locked over self which we are seeking to understand. Therefore, it is very necessary to be still in the sense of recovering from all of those intemperances of attitudes by means of which the normal growth of the consciousness is delayed or, di or disposed of entirely. Therefore, if we want to really understand this, we have to begin the process of ironing out ourselves to get rid of those things which interfere with the natural mistakes of life. This whole problem of the cont continuity of a compound attitude has to be broken up in some way. The person has to be able to be quiet Without unhappy thoughts coming, he must be able to be relaxed and think without thinking destructively, critically, or in some way detrimental to all concerned. And if his thinking is so bad he can't stand it, he has got to learn to get over the instinct to take a drink or something and forget himself. The individual trying to forget himself is really telling us he's trying to forget a personality that is impossible. And there is no way of getting away with it except by outgrowing it. So we have now the complex situation of people who want to grow, 
but have already stunted their own growth badly. They want to be better, but they do not know what to do with the mistakes that have accumulated. I think the old mystics had the perfect answer for it. They simply said, be quiet and know that I am God. Now this wasn't a theological type of definition. It is a definition based upon the concept that when we cease to build our own mistakes, when we cease to fashion a giant monster out of our own intemperances and relax, all of these evil things simply fade away for lack of nutrition. But they will not fade as long as one drop of nutriment is available to them. As long as we continue to have unhappy attitudes, we are not going to solve the mystery of our own inner consciousness. If the mind is used as it was intended to be used, and that is for the common good, for the advancement of everything that is real and valuable in life, if the mind could be released from the terrific pressure of self-interest, if it could get away from all its scheming on how to defeat a brother, and rather simply, quietly work out how to help him, all things would be much better in the mental world, there would be much less mental breakdown, and we would not be suffering from too many cases of senility. It is the misuse of the mind that gradually changes life into a dismal uh, uh, dwelling for the individual. All right, let's pause here and just break down a little bit what he was just talking about. The central theme of the overall presentation is the idea of how do you release consciousness as a factor above or behind the mind. According to his view, you build a relationship with consciousness or the so-called higher self by gradually stilling the disturbances that exist within the mind that keep the mind away from being able to harmonize with the sort of spiritual consciousness underneath it. So we're going to pick back up now on this line of thinking and hear a couple more clips where he elaborates on these points. In other words, if the mind and emotions are locked in conflict, they're in trouble. Wherever there is conflict, there is a kind of destruction. There is a false motion. Wherever there is an obstruction, there is a decay of values, a disintegration, an infection in which something becomes sick. All selfishness is sickness, no matter what you want to call it. All jealousy is sickness. These things are just exactly as serious as sicknesses as are the ordinary physical ailments which we may or may not be able to cure. This problem, therefore, is to get rid of the sickness arising from the misuse of powers, faculties, and principles within ourselves. Unless we're able to do this, we're going to stay right in trouble just the way we are. But the worst part of it is, we may be a good church member while we're in this problem. It has never occurred to us that religion demanded anything more of us than allegiance. It was like a parent who demanded that the child obey, but did not necessarily uh, contribute to any enlightenment in the purposes of obedience. The, uh, the religious association which washes away sins with baptismal water has not gotten to the point where it realizes 
or with bad people realize that they have got to wash their own sins away all too often with their own tears. So there is time to get at some of these values directly. If the person wants to be born again in the theological sense of the word, it isn't that he simply accepts a religion. To be born again means to not make the same mistakes again. It means to clear the slate. A new birth means to start out with a fresh, clean, honest mind without carrying anything from the past that was destructive or against the Ten Commandments or against the Sermon on the Mount. Everything that is detrimental must be left aside. It must not be carried forward. Yet the individual uh, may be born again. But to be born again with them is to be just the same as you were before. Instead of a new birth, it's just a new name for the same old things that you always problemed. He also has developed a new escape which our ancestors really didn't have. Namely, that if he couldn't get out of the trouble himself, he could hire someone else to get out of it for him. But it's just as difficult to have another person solve your problems as to have another person eat your food and you be nourished by it. You can't do these things. All right, so now we're going to listen to one more clip where he, I think, brings these ideas home. Therefore, we say that when we want the individual to be still and know, we want the individual to change his entire basic uh, formula for life. It doesn't mean he can't speak. It doesn't mean he can't have ideas. But he has to have only things that work together for good. The body, mind, emotions must be brought into harmonic relationships. There must be no discords in the compound of the person. It doesn't mean he necessarily is awfully well advanced. He isn't perfect. He isn't above making an occasional mistake. But when he makes a mistake, he knows it and he's sorry. And when he's not too wise, he may be much deeper in the mysteries of his own inner life. So the problem is that in stillness now is the end of conflict, not the end of function. It is that no longer will the individual be in a continuous disturbance with himself. All right, so I have two more clips that I picked out. In these two, last two clips, Manly Hall moves things along and takes a look at the idea of meditation and relates the idea of philosophic stillness as the approach to opening the inner life. That's actually what meditation is. So the um, Buddhists and the Zen people, for instance, have a very quiet method of meditation. They sit quietly and they simply allow not a blank to set in. The idea is not to make the mind a blank. The idea is to make the mind a gentle disciple at the kneeling or seated at the foot of the reality within. The human becomes the trailer of the divine, becomes the disciple of that which must always be the leader. There are things we can do ourselves each day. We can begin to quiet the prominent causes of confusion. There is no meditation based upon some esoteric exercise that can ever work 
if the individual has not accomplished a transformation within himself. This was the highest phase of alchemy. Alchemy was to make gold out of base metals. And uh, the spiritual alchemy was to discover the eternal gold of reality in all things, which can be released and brought into manifestation by art. Okay, so as a conclusion, the main theme is that the underlying approach of philosophy is really the idea of healing through the removal of error. The outcomes and goals of the philosopher, which is to open the doors to the inner light, come by gradually removing all the errors and false patterns of thinking and living and the sort of various physical abnormalities of the body to bring all those into a state of normalcy, as he would describe it. And then once the sort of conflict within the self, within the lower nature has been brought into harmony, naturally the inner life will come through because it is able to come through because you've harmonized the lower with the higher. So that process of self-harmonization is the philosophic approach to stillness and it's the philosophic approach to meditation and just in general, it's the approach of the philosopher. So you go through the teachings and lessons and disciplines of philosophy so that you can properly attain to this sort of internal knowledge, the esoteric knowledge, the sort of experiences of consciousness. So those are really the end goal of philosophy. It's not the starting point. It's what you're trying to achieve. And the overall theme of this lecture was to inform us that the route or method to attaining this end goal is not something that you willfully make happen. You don't take heaven by storm or you don't storm the gates of heaven, so to speak. Instead, the path is one of gradual reduction of conflict within the self and in your relationships with other people and with the sort of natural world that you live in. So as you decrease conflict, naturally those ex experiences, internal experiences, religious experiences and experiences that give us esoteric knowledge, those experiences are really the foundation of the philosopher's way of knowing. The ultimate final step is sort of the release of all effort and a sort of full re receptivity. And when that is accomplished, then the higher self comes through. And the master of being able to do that is really one who transcends philosophy and then becomes the so-called adept. Um, but we'll have much more to say about that as we gradually uh, continue our investigations of Manley Hall's work, which we'll do throughout many videos on this channel. So stay tuned for those. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you learned something. Take care.